Bryden McPherson is anything but not interesting. In a pro career littered with highlights and moments of toil and frustration that often made him reevaluate himself, Bryden's name is now fresh on the lips of every golf follower with his astonishing run of great play over the Australian summer of golf. Fresh off his most recent victory at last week's New South Wales Open, I caught up with BMAC to speak about the journey, the work, his new understanding of what works best for him, and how he has transformed his game over the past 18 months, with a little help from your host, to the heights that hopefully will continue to flourish long into the future. Sit back and enjoy. Bryden McPherson. Well, welcome to Bradley Hughes podcast, Bryden McPherson. A little bit of a hot run of late. Everyone that's uh, not hiding under a rock, especially in Australia, would have seen Bryden's name up in lights the last, especially the last uh, month, but had a great run leading up to that. Um, how are you doing, mate? Yeah, good, good. Just recovering after seven, what, seven events in nine weeks or something like that. So, uh, yeah, it's been good, and it's uh, it gets exhausting being in contention every week. But uh, that's, I guess, a good problem to have. You know how uh, Tiger Woods feels. That's right. I don't know how he did it for all those years. <laughs> so obviously, I, I like to get a bit of background because growing up as a a young kid, getting good at golf early, I like to find out someone's background, like how soon they started playing, how good they got at such a young age or was it a later progression or whatever? So fill us in your background, how you got into golf, what age and how, uh, how advanced you got in, in, you know, quick space time or did it take longer? Yeah. So I started, uh, basically got interested because both of my granddads played my, my dad's dad was a, one of the elite amateurs in Victoria and when I stayed down here, uh, which was a big deal in the 50s. Um, and he used to play a lot with Peter Thompson and Doug Backley and all those guys. And uh, he was at uh, Woodlands Golf Club and he played number one for their pennant team and all these things. So he's, he was uh, quite a good amateur, uh, quite involved in the golf community uh, when he was younger. And then my, my mum's dad was a tragic social golfer who picked it up in his 60s and then just played right until the very end of his life. And... Uh, so I sort of got interested through them. And then uh, my parents were like, oh, you know, maybe this is something you want to try out. And so uh, I was 11 when they joined me up at the local golf club, Devil Bend Golf Club in Muraduck down the, the uh, Mornington Peninsula there. And uh, I started playing on Saturdays. My dad played my three rounds with me to get my handicap. My first handicap was 30. And then I, uh, we, I started playing on Saturdays with the members, which for me as sort of a 12-year-old, uh, being 12, that's when you can start playing, right, on your own. If you only right, yeah. 12, you have a parent with you, right? So um, some of these archaic rules that we have. But um, so I started playing on Saturdays with the members, enjoyed it. And I still remember calling my parents and saying when I had had my first sort of round of more than 36 points and I had uh, 
for gotten into a tw- in the twenties with my handicap. And I called them and I said, you know, you're the proud parent of a child that's got a twenty-something handicap, right? <laughs> I think I was I was twelve for that. But once I sort of got the 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 trend, I started getting a couple lessons from Shane Johnson, who was the head pro there, and then uh, with the trainee at the time, Christian Kylie, who then became the head pro, and then I. Uh, started playing Saturdays and Sundays and then like practicing a night after school one, you know, one day and then two nights after school. And, and then before I knew it, I was, I was 12 and playing off 12 and uh, I was like, Oh, maybe I'm okay. With this. And, and then the next little while I got down to four before I turned 13. And then I, our, our was, lives are, our lives are parallel right here. <laughs> because same, then, same thing for me. I couldn't join a club till I was 12. My first handicap was 29, so I was one better than yeah. you. You yeah, must have shot yeah, 107 well. instead of 106 when you put in your car. <laughs> and then same deal. I got it down to 11, exactly what you said, after about a year and then or yeah. so long, and then I was down to four the following year. So we, we're parallel yeah. right there. Yeah, well, it's about to diverge because you got into the Vic Open when you were 15 and I didn't play my first professional event until I was 18. But the um, I uh, then started to – I sort of had a bit of a plateau when I got to a four handicap uh, when I was sort of learning basically what the meaning of consistency is. And uh, then once I sort of broke through that, I very quickly had a summer where I played at Peninsula Golf Club, which I joined when I was 15, where I basically shot under par every round for um, for about two months. And so my handicap very quickly came from four down to about plus three. And all of a sudden I was, oh, now I have to shoot under par, you know, when you're a 15-year-old and playing off plus three. I have to shoot under par every time I play because I play off plus three, right? So the, the handicap system is expecting me to shoot a 69 every time I play. So it's... Uh, that, I still remember those kind of feelings and that was pretty cool. And then I started to get noticed uh, by the, you know, the state teams and the state development teams and all this kind of stuff and, and the Victorian Institute of Sport and all these things. And, and then I just started to get into some junior teams, some junior state teams, played my first one in 2006. Yeah. And um, uh, I, you know, basically went along as like an extra for that. I was sort of very much the last guy in the team. And then I started to play the men's events uh, uh, I think I was the first guy to be on the, both the junior winning side and the men's winning side in the same year. It's been done a few times since then, uh, but I think I was the, the glass ceiling breaker in that sense. But uh, so I, um, yeah, I went through all the process of, of sort of, and then, you know, as you get older, uh, you know, 16, 17, 18, people start talking to you about turning professional and things start to get serious and you start talking about, competition schedules and and then what comes along with that is a bunch of people telling you that you need to work on stuff that you're like that you need to improve x in order to do x uh and you know there were some people in that group who knew what they were talking about but there were also some people that didn't know what they were talking about and me being 17 how the hell do I know the difference, right? And so um, I'm sort of listening to everybody and taking it all in uh, and kind of get your gravity is like that, right? It's like when you first get out on tour and you get on the range and you kind of listen to everything that everyone's doing. And uh, I then started basically dismantling my personality that I'd sort of built as a golfer from the age of 12 to the age of 17. And 
I, you know, in, I started dismantling it in the name of development. And I sort of started to, you know, toy around with, with just basically getting away from my instincts. And my instincts was to, I used to hit the ball quite far when I was younger. I used to take a big old turn behind it, big overswing, which people watching my swing now will think is quite funny, but uh, big overswing. And then I just used to have this massive lateral shift. I just used to hit it as hard as I could. With a draw. Um, with a big old high draw. And then it started becoming about, you know, people would say, oh, you know, it's not that consistent. It's, it's this, it's that. And, you know, you need to get better control and all these kinds of things, um, which, you know, at the time in the mid 2000s probably made sense because Tiger was around and was just controlling everything. Uh, but, you know, the way that the game's gone in the last 10 years, uh, length has become somewhat important. So that was something that I sort of maybe I wish I hadn't gotten away from. But then as I started to move up the amateur ranks, uh, you know, I was sort of into the national squads and Eisenhower teams and I got the opportunity to go play college golf at the University of Georgia which was just such an unbelievable opportunity that was total serendipity and uh, turned out to be the best decision I ever made in my life uh, to go over there and play and sort of get to become part of that fraternity. Uh, so in, yeah. It's an interesting yeah. thing that I just wanted to touch on what you talked about is yeah. that it's very true that when you get, someone gets good at something and then next minute, let's say a coaching staff is brought in or you, like you said, you're in part of now of a squad and there's a coach and there's all different behind the scenes people. Um, I guess to an extent they feel they have to do something to make themselves worthy for their job. And when you went to college in Georgia, and I, I know this a little bit from experience, is that the coach of a college or university in America is not really a golf coach, are they? They're more of a, a no. structurized person and they let the, the kids practice and they basically teach them how to manage themselves and not really manage their swings. It's a, it's a very different concept and, and I know you've seen both sides of that. Is that true? It is, yeah. I mean, it's, it's more of a mentor position which I think is really cool. Um, and that's probably just a function of the fact that when you go to college, you're 18, 19, you know, totally full of energy and have no idea what you're doing. And you have to go and live on your own sometimes for the first time, usually always for the first time. And then you have to manage all the things that come with that. So like managing the little bit of money that your parents give you, managing, you know, getting yourself fed and washing your clothes and paying rent and paying utilities and all these kinds of things that you have to sort of, that college functions really, really well as, as a stepping stone into adult life. And so the, when you're playing a college golf team, the really good college coaches also play the role as mentors for that side of the challenge that you're going through. And the ones that do it right, of which Chris Hack and Jim Douglas at UGA do it right, they balance those things perfectly well. And they are more focused on turning guys into, um, you know, good young men rather than, you know, just changing their golf swings because their logic is that, well, you're already a pretty good player. So, and the, the guys that come and play at UGA are already much better players 
they're much better at playing golf than they are at being an adult. So really what Hack's challenge is, is to help turn them into an adult, not turn them into a good player because they're already a good player. So right. he and that's has what I was kind of getting at, that you've got the ability. That's, that's what got you in the squad and got you on the, in the college and everything. So it's not always golf swing, golf swing, golf swing. It's here you go, let's go do this or, you know, help you right. with your grades or other things like that. I feel like a, I feel like a, uh, you know, a right kind of hierarchy when it comes to structuring that stuff is, hey, let's get you competing with what you've got now. Let's go and test it. Let's teach you how to, I don't know, strategize your way around a golf course that makes you feel comfortable with it or something that makes sense to you. Let's teach you how to do like a proper warm-up. Let's teach you how to do you know, like a bit of a pre-shot routine or something like this, right? These basic sort of fundamental building blocks that everyone that plays golf well does. Let's just put all these things in place for you. Let's not worry about your game. Let's, your, let's let your game become your game. And then if it turns out that we can do all these things for you and you seem to be doing all the right stuff and you're still not competing, well, okay, maybe then we can tweak something in your swing, you know, like, and... It, that can work. I mean, it can, you know, as a last resort, it's normally the last piece of the puzzle, as has been with Brendan Todd, as also worked for, I know Kiz didn't work with you, but Kiz did work with someone to, that's Kevin Kisner, to change his swing around and make it a little bit more consistent. And that certainly worked for him. And then that was the last piece for him. And so I feel like it's a last resort thing to work on someone's swing and technique. It shouldn't be a first reaction. But then again, I think it's totally human nature for a coach in charge of a development squad to um, want to justify their existence. I think all of us want to do that. I think probably, you know, you do it pretty well in your coaching, but it's a tough thing to actually not say something. You know, it's it a tough thing to actually just say, yep, <laughs> I agree, you know, and like, and let's see how it plays out. It's, it's hard to play the long game. Like it, that's a hard thing. And I don't think it's really realistic to expect everybody to be able to do it. Uh, and so I think this, there's a lot of kind of moving parts here, but I would love for there to be somewhat of a firewall between some of the young players and then the coaches who are eager to prove their worth, but maybe don't understand that, you know, you really do just need to play the long game. Like you just need to let these kids play, you know, and then let them figure it out and then help them when they need it. That's it. It's a fascinating you know? thing because, you know, you, we've known each other for a fair while now and we have pretty similar ideas on a lot of things. But I'll never forget, uh, you know, when I started working with Brendan Todd and it, it didn't happen overnight, but things happened pretty quickly for him overall. Started to get his game back. And uh, I knew his brother-in-law. I didn't know his wife at the time. I'd never met her or anything. And his brother-in-law was telling me a story how his wife thought it was really funny that um, she said, when is Bradley ever coming out? Is he coming out to any of the tournaments? Because I'd like to meet him. And I basically said, no, I don't, I don't need to go there. She, she laughed at the fact that Brendan said, are you going to come out next week? And I said, no, you're fine. Just off you go. Uh -huh. I, I don't have to prove. Basically, you got to take the training wheels off at some point and let the player do it themselves. And and that's what I was getting at with that. That you know, there's coaching, but there's also overcoaching. And and as a coach, 
like you got with your college experience, there's other facets as well. It's not just all about golf. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, ideally you would have someone who is a true golf coach, wants to come to a tournament on Thursday to Sunday, doesn't want to come to a tournament on Monday to Wednesday because he wants to see, like, what's actually going on when they're playing. And, like, and just to see that part of it, to see how the work that they're doing in the weeks off is actually getting in there or not and to see if there actually is an issue <laughs> or whether the player is just inventing an issue, you know, so, uh, like, you know, because they feel like they need to be working on something. So, like, there's, there's all kinds of things to it. It's funny how people just fall into what sort of the, the main narrative is. Like a golf coach thinks, oh, well, all the other golf coaches go on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so I should go. Well, just because everyone does something doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. Uh, and you need to look at it on a case-by-case basis and understand so long as you're following the fundamentals, so long as you're helping someone just actually get better at the game, then that's all that matters. And, but the other, the other second part of that is that are you actually doing it? Like, can you actually objectively say, I am doing it? Because a lot of people will nod along with that and say, yeah, I do that. Uh, but can you actually look, step back and say, yeah, but are you actually doing it? You know? <laughs> it's like that's a whole second set of self-awareness that you need that the really good coaches have because they just say, yeah, well, I might say all these things and, and all these other guys say all these things, but the difference is, is that they say it and I actually do it. So there's, uh, there's something really, really interesting in there. And, I mean, I think you do it really well. So that's why I sort of sing your praises everywhere I, everywhere I go. So. <laughs> I am. Um, we, we have the, the Georgia connection there. Obviously, I live in South Carolina. Athens, where you went to college, is less than two hours away from where I live. And Brendan Todd went there. but And he went, I think he went with Kisner, Kis, Kevin Kisner. Yeah, and Kurt as well. They're on the team together, those and, three guys. But you had some great players on your team during your time there. Fill, fill us in on that. I sure did. So I had the... Uh, the pleasure of playing with uh, Harris English and Hudson Swafford and Russell Henley were the big three on the team when I first got there. And then we also had TJ Mitchell, who's an incredibly good player himself. I think he's, uh, I don't know where he's playing right now, but he's really, really good. Uh, and then a couple of the other guys coming through were Mike Cromie, who's, who's also a really good player. And then, um, Coming through after them were guys that people will definitely know, Keith Mitchell and Sepp Strucker. And so we had all these guys kind of on our team kind of revolving around. I, Keith came in uh, my second year and then Sepp came in the year after after Keith. So I think Sepp missed uh, Harry Hudson Russ because they had all graduated. But Hudson graduated eventually after his nine years of college, however long he was there for. He was always sitting there hanging around. But I still remember um, getting to know those guys and uh, playing golf with them. I still remember playing with Hudson for the first time. And I had never seen anybody hit a golf shot the way that Hudson could hit a golf shot. And it was amazing to me. It opened my eyes as to what is possible. Uh, and I still remember it just vividly. We're playing the first hole at UGA, which the people who have played there, it's like a 450-yard par four plays like straight into the wind normally. And I'm and I fit in my driver down there and hit my whatever three iron or four iron in. Hudson hits his drive 50 yards past me and then hits this seven iron in, 
to like a foot. And as he's tamping the dividend, he's coming walking past me and he goes, what you know about that seven iron board like this? And I'm just like, what are you? What are you? Like, this is unbelievable. How do you hit golf shots like that? And like, how do you be that casual with it? And just getting to know those guys was, I would never have encountered anyone of their ability or like them down here in Australia. And that's, it's just the way that it is. People are different in different places and they have different expectations and all kinds of stuff. And so the more that you can get out there and the more that you can learn from people like that, the better. And seeing what good is, is just, I don't know, it's so valuable. Uh, you know, understanding where you can get to, how you can hit it, how you can chip it, how you can putt it, uh, is knowing what's possible is essential for just for success. And we see that a lot too. Like you see, um, let's, for example, um, go back in the day, Robert Allenby goes out and wins. He grew up with Stuart Appleby and Jeff Ogilvy. So then Appleby goes out and wins. And then Ogilvy goes out and wins. It's like everyone inspires kind of like what you were talking about. You see something and you it probably inspires you. So based on that, you... Um, you know, they was a great bunch of guys you played against and played with and immediately your eyes were opened up a little bit to how they're better than me. But you you won one of the biggest tournaments ever as an amateur, the British amateur in 2011. So yeah, none of them did. did. None of them won the US amateur. And so technically you had the best record out of all those guys by the time you left. Yeah, technically. And... uh probably undeservingly for my ability. But I, su- I somehow managed to get it just through uh, my, I think it definitely helped me that the British Ham was a match play event. Uh, and I've just always been kind of a gritty competitor, uh, apparently exactly like my granddad back in the day. Uh, all everyone used to say about him, well, he's not the best player, but he wants to beat you more than anybody else. And I think that definitely, that gene definitely carried down to me. So I think that was definitely part of it uh, that week that I won the amateur. Um, and how did you get over there for that tournament? What was, were you over there playing a host of tournaments? So it's a really, it's a really incredible story. We, I was playing just awfully, so bad in the spring schedule and hitting it everywhere and just trying to get up and down to break 80 and mostly not succeeding. And we were at regionals in Colorado and I was sitting in the hotel room with Russ Henley and coach hack. And I'm telling them, I'm like, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand what's going on. I'm like trying my hardest. I'm doing everything I can. What the hell am I doing? And I'm like, this is it. I'm doing four years at UGA. And I originally just planned to do two. I'm like, I'm staying, you know, I just, I need to do, maybe I just need to get a degree so I can get a job. Right, like this is important. It's, it's starting. It was the first time that it dawned on me that I might not make it as a pro. And the what happened was they were like, you know, we just need to just relax. And and before, you know, my rash mind, before I had had this conversation, the British Am was like a few weeks later, right? So, and I had entered already. Uh, my mum had had booked my flights for me, uh, and through her travel agent and. I had sent an email to the head of the entries at the RNA, Jonathan Tippetts, and said, hey, um, I need to withdraw from the British M. Uh, I'm not going to come over. I'm, I'm just I'm not in a good spot. And I had this conversation with them. 
And then I'd reached out to the travel agent and had found out that the flights were non-refundable. So she said, you may as well go anyway. So I very quickly got back home with John Tippett and I said, actually, no, don't worry about it. That's fine. Don't worry about it. And so he had woken up the next morning and gotten into the work at the RNA and seen both emails with about a four hour gap there uh, in the time. And he, and he said, oh, it's a good thing you emailed me before the workday started. So uh, I'll leave you in the tournament. That's fine. And so we went to nationals a couple of weeks later and uh, I shot 81 in the first round at, at Casting Creek, which anyone that's played Casting Creek, OSU's golf course, knows it's very possible, but still. And then Hack and Doug basically grabbed me by the collar and said, we'll just go into the range. Come on, we're just going to go get you something simple so you can try and hit it and play. And they were just having me work on my rhythm. And then so I went out the next day and I played and I was just thinking about my rhythm and I hit the ball in play and I shot 71, which we needed as a team, kept us in the tournament because one of the other guys didn't have a great day. And I was normally the one not having a good day. And so it was nice that when one of the other guys didn't have a good day, I could play half decent. And so we got through and then I won all my matches and we lost in the final, which is still just brutal stings. Uh, and um, I went to the British End the next week, just focused on my rhythm, had a good putting week, and I won the British End. And it was amazing that how quickly things changed like that. And it was amazing that it came from thinking about less, not more. And it took me about nine more years to realise that that's all you have to do. <laughs> less is always sometimes more, isn't it? Less is always more. Well, what is, um, you know, obviously it opened up a bunch of doors, got to play, what's it? It's a huge event, probably not as well-known now as a U.S. amateur is, but, you know, they were big events. Bobby Jones won them and, and things yeah, like that. It used, a lot to, of American, it used to be a major. <laughs> yeah, it used to be a major. So you've got your major already. Got my major already. If they reinvent that what? thing. Yeah. But you got to right. play the Masters, which is obviously a pinnacle for any golfer. I got to play it once and I was off my head the whole week. Um, but as an amateur, you know, growing up, or not growing up, but, spending your time in Georgia and being there. That was, I bet that was pretty cool. Did you, did you stay, you know, people probably realise when you're an amateur, you, there's only so many invites. You, you know, you basically can't Monday qualify for the Masters or you have to win a tournament to get in it. So you won one of the good ones that got in it. And generally in those days, there was probably maybe five or six amateurs played and you, a lot of them uh, were given the, I guess, the, the free room up the top of the clubhouse, the crow's nest. The crow's, the crow's nest, that's right. I did go up there, but because we had so many people, I uh, say so, so many people, there was like eight of us who were sort of there for the week. Uh, we rented a house instead and uh, we stayed um, over in North Augusta. And so that was cool though, because, you know, I had some buddies who wanted to come and then my dad as well. And so like my mum was there too. And so it was like, it was uh, it was very cool from that side of things. I mean, I mean, what an experience! I mean, it's just it's it's phenomenal. I mean, the the fact that they you know they don't let the amateurs wear any kind of sponsored gear. So I had my Georgia bag, Georgia head cover, everything Georgia, and I was uh, you know getting cheers from the crowd, go dolls from the crowd, you know, sick from the crowd. It's awesome, and uh, so. But wearing the Augusta hat, all the members know that you're one of the amateurs. So, you know, they go out of their way to really make you feel welcome. So I always tell people it's an experience playing the Masters. 
But the level of hospitality when you're one of the amateurs playing the Masters is kind of a different level. Uh, not that I've had the experience of playing as a pro, maybe one day, but uh, hopefully one day. But um, it's still, it was just such a cool experience. Uh, and I still remember basically everything about the week. Yeah. You play with anyone cool? Practice? You weren't the guy that made them change the practice round rule, were you? That you could only come there six times before the tournaments. Someone abused that, would go every day for two months. You know what? That may, I may very well have contributed to that. That's a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely got the, uh, yeah, you're coming too much uh, uh, talk from, from the head pro. But um, uh, that's that's fine. I mean, as if you're not going to abuse that, right? What the hell? Yeah, of course. Yeah, once you get your invitation, you apparently you're allowed to go there and, and do whatever you want, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. No, that I may I may very well have contributed to that. But I played a practice round with uh, Webb Simpson. It was his first Masters as well in 2012. And uh, I played in the tournament with um, Ben Crenshaw. Uh, and I played with Robert Carlson as well. That was my pairing. And so it was pretty cool to walk those fairways with Ben. Um, he was just the epitome of com- of just compassion and generosity and all these and things. He's like just a folklore, isn't he? Really, for what he's yeah, he really is. He really is. He's like a uh, he's like I feel like there's always going to be a part of him that's there, and uh, that's going to be such a cool thing. And the um, fact that you're from the the fact that you're from the Melbourne Sandbelt, I'm sure that really amped him up a bit more because he, he would have well, talked about that forever. Well, all he wanted to talk about was Kingston Heath, Royal Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's right. And, uh, yeah, I, I wish I had known more about course design at the time to be able to actually hold my conversation with him, but I don't think I did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and then winning the amateur also got you in the, the British Open. So that was probably one, not one of your greatest experiences, but tell us about that. You know, obviously a really tough. Was that that year where you had, or was that in, uh, later on when you? No. So the so the first Open that I played was you know a month later after the amateur. So I had gone from, you know, contemplating changing my degree to something to be able to get a job to playing in a major like uh, two months later. So um, I got up and the Open was at Royal St George's that year. Uh, that was the year that Darren Clark won. Um, and I still remember watching him uh, and Dennis McDade, my coach at the time, watching uh, Darren Clark and Graham McDowell have a driver off the deck contest on the range and watching Darren Clark hitting some of these shots and we're just looking at it and we're going, yeah, he might win this week. <laughs> um, and because Royal St. George's is a ball striker's paradise. Uh, it is so difficult. Uh, if you have complete control over your ball, you've got such an advantage of everybody. Um, and so... That was a really cool week. You know, I played a practice round with Lee Westwood when he was world number one. Uh, watched him, hit a drive off the deck. I guess that was the theme of the week. From like 300 yards into the wind to like six feet. And uh, Dennis looked at me and he said, yeah, that's why he's world number one. And I said, yeah, okay, that's uh, fantastic. But uh, um, that was a cool week. I got paired with Padre Carrington and Matt Kucho. And uh, so that was pretty cool. I mean, Padraig has the same level of connection to the open championship i think that ben does to the masters so i think it was uh that was really really cool there are a lot of people following us um and i actually played quite well i only missed the cut by a shot and i missed the cut because i didn't get up and down from just short of the 18th green uh and um i was actually running about 
twelfth uh, or something after the first round. I shot one over and pretty or even par one over and pretty tough. I shot one over because the cup was three over. I shot one over, three over, missed by one. And uh, that was such a cool experience. I was just waiting in the deep end. You know, I'm just running up and down the tour trucks. I'm looking at everything, all the people on the range, and playing all these holes. and you know, Excess baggage on the way home. Oh, it was so cool. I, I got all this tour gear. I got this, this tour, you know, all the rain gear and stuff. I thought it was so cool. So um, that was a really, really cool experience. Uh, and then coming back to play like the Dogwood Championship the next week was uh, pretty was pretty cool. I was like, where am I? This is unreal. What's going on? So um, it was uh, it was a really cool experience. And then I did qualify for the Open again. In, yeah, uh, that's what in I, I jumped the gun with. I, I remember playing a practice round where I didn't play. I was up there in Royal, I think it was at Royal Sydney with Robert Allenby. And we yep. played a practice round with you. And I think that week you came in the top four or five that got you exempt in yeah. the Open again. That's right. So I finished fourth that week at Royal Sydney. That was uh, 2013. And that qualified me for the Open in 2014, which was at Hoylake, um, which I never felt so ready for a golf tournament and then been so bitterly disappointed <laughs> by it was really one of the first times that I had really properly experienced any kind of performance anxiety. Um, once I got going in front of all these people at Hoylake, uh, you know, I made bogey on the first, which it's not an easy hole, but still I just didn't get up and down. And then I made par on the second, made it great up and down. And then I sort of hit this like pretty close to a shank shot off the third and then was all over the place. And then it just got worse and worse and worse. And, and I, just totally lost awareness of where the club head was. It felt like it was totally disconnected from my hands and, and the, it felt like I, I felt like I was trying to hit the ball into the fairway that was smaller than the golf ball. I'd say I, I had no idea what was going on and I was basically just scared to hit it. And I ended up missing like a 10 footer on the last hole to break 90 and uh, was just a brutal experience. Um, but a good experience because, you know, I mean, I just, I sort of went through that and, uh, I've always said that, you know, you've got to experience all the highs and the lows. And, um, I guess that comment came back to bite me cause that was one hell of a low, uh, but, um, you know, it was, it, it was just a, uh, really tough, really tough thing. Everyone watching me, my granddad had, and my dad had flown over together to watch me play. Um, and you know, it was just, uh, yeah, it's just a tough thing. I, you know, it's not really much to say about it, except that it was just crap. <laughs> but you said you <laughs> felt like you're in a good frame of mind, like you were going to play well. So I really did. And, uh, I had played a practice round with Graham McDowell and I only found out, uh, after the event that McDowell on Saturday had gone up to leash cause leash was getting coached by Dennis as well. So I didn't try to, and he, he said, the leash, he goes, what the hell happened to your boy, Brian? And he goes, I played a practice round with him on Tuesday and I thought he was playing so well that I went and put 50 quid on him to finish top 10. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so that was a nice little way, you know, for me to be like, oh, you know, maybe, you know, because that disconnect between practice round and tournament round is something that all of us as pros and players are always trying to get it to be the same. <laughs> uh, you always want to play as well in the tournament as you do in the practice round. And what's funny for me recently, I don't know what's happened, but it's been, it's actually swapped for me now. 
that I actually play worse in practice rounds than I do in tournament rounds. Um, and that's been a cool thing with me because uh, previously, when I, what's that? It does better. pay much better. <laughs> it does pay much better than the 10, 10, 20 games that we play in practice rounds. Um, but the uh, it's it's been really strange. And a couple of times I've been, you know, you're not hitting it that great in the practice round. And then I'll just say, that was like, can we just play for some money or something? Can we play for lunch or something? I need something to get me going here. And then, uh, and then we'll start pew, 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 hitting, hitting it great. So it's, uh, yeah, it's amazing. It, I think that that's when you know that you know that your game. That's when you know that you know your game is when uh, you can you're craving some kind of pressure in order to make it work. I don't want to remind you about this because you touched on it, but I think uh, I think one day when I was back in Australia, spent a little bit of time back in Australia in 13, 14, 15, we got in touch and we went to have a game at Peninsula Kingswood and you sort of said to me, hey, I'm not just playing for nothing. Let's play for lunch or something. And um, I think you paid. I absolutely did. I got absolutely schooled by you. <laughs> I Which is not uncommon for those that have played golf with Brad Hughes. Those those that know know that it's basically always a bit of a ball striking clinic. So it's uh, somewhat of a question of are the putts going in? And I seem to remember some putts going in on that day. Yes, so uh, there's a connection between putts going in and me paying for lunch. I believe. I think. Uh, I, I, I remember. Think, I remember the yeah. little dejected look, and you like shaking your head, and you went. No one's ever beat me on my home course. What's going on there? No one has ever beat me on my home <laughs> course, except for you that one time. <laughs> ah, all right, I'll, I'll hold that torch high. Oh, that's all right. Hold that over me. We'll have to get you down and play it again sometime. We shall. I'm getting a bit older now. You're getting better. <laughs> but I remember that day because afterwards we went to the range and you had this little wooden board and you were like, just focus on you know, getting some pressure into this ground and into the board and hit some shots. And I remember hitting it really well. And I was thinking to myself, man, this is pretty good stuff. But I had been somewhat, you know, brainwashed is a wrong word. It's the right verb, but it's the wrong word because it implies some kind of uh, like malintent. That's not what I believe at all. But I think we just have a culture down here in Australia of like, reaffirming what we already know instead of exploring possibilities of things that we don't know yet. So I think I was in that frame of mind of like, well, you know, I, I work with some coaches already that I know and I know they have a quote-unquote plan for me and here's this new guy who just schooled me around in his golf course, who's played on tour and he's giving me these simple things and telling me that's all that matters for me at 24 was a really difficult jump for me to make, but there are very few things I regret in my life. That's probably one of the only things that I regret was not saying like, Hey, will you tell me more about this? And uh, it's, it's funny because there've been some people now that I've been trying to show some of the stuff to down here in Oz and I can see them making the same mistake that I did. And uh, what's really funny is that like, which for me gives me a little bit of a, uh, it, it helps me kind of deal with it because I know that it was, it's not really, it's, it's a, it was a difficult thing to do is to take that kind of leap of faith. And I think that's a, 
that's something that I eventually came around to and maybe things come full circle um, in the end. But uh, it, it's been good, you know, ever, ever since we started working on stuff. I mean, I, I, I had high hopes and they have been, you know, fulfilled. We all want to become better. Now you have the opportunity to learn all about the training drills I use with my amateur players, beginners, and my PGA Tour players that I work with. My second ebook, The 430 Path to Great Golf, is now available. Take an in-depth look at the technique and drills that have helped hundreds of golfers the world over. Train your swing to be more powerful, more consistent, and more like you envision your swing to be. The 430 Path to Great Golf, only available in the store at BradleyHughesGolfForum.com and BradleyHughesGolf-Members.com. Bradley Hughes Golf, it's where experience counts. Now let's get back to the interview. And we'll, we'll jump in here before we sort of go through the whole our relationship as coach-player type thing. But, um, you know, we, we did start working. I guess it's about 18 months ago. And I have a not a strict set of rules, but I, I have a kind of a it's, – it's not a system. It's not even a program. It's not – it's a – it's just a, a way of – teaching someone that I think in the correct order of what they need to learn. And uh, you took that to heart, worked really hard on it, and obviously we're seeing the results now. But while we're here and I've got you, we have to probably announce that Bryden McPherson is now the only truly Bradley Hughes golf certified instructor in the world. Oh, wow. What an honour. It's my certificate in the mail. Yeah, you so, get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, honestly, like I, I think about it like, you know, because you're right, system is the wrong word, even though it is systematic. It's more like the foundations. You always build the foundations. It's like you can build whatever house you want, but it's always got to go on a slab of concrete. You know, so that's the bit that I think is kind of the way that uh, I'm showing my, my novice novice of house building there by the way i'm sure someone knows better but the um the you have to build the same fundamentals in every golf swing and you know you can just look at the guys that you teach on the tour not one not any of them swing it the same and they're all but the irony being of course that it looks completely different but they're all doing the exact same four or five drills correct you know everyone like that and that's What's, what's really funny is that there will be other coaches that will claim to coach people uniquely, but they will end up coaching them to all look the same. But you are actually, you are li literally teaching the same thing to everyone, but getting varied but consistent results, which is kind of funny. It's a little bit counterintuitive, like most golf things. It's like if you just teach the basics, then... Uh, and guys can figure it out from there. And so I've really, ta I've really taken it on to, to understand it. And so, yeah, now when I'm down here coaching, I'm, I'm honoured to, uh, to have the blessing of the, of the guru. But you've done so, it pretty well. Uh, you've, 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 you know, like I said, in 18 months, you've come a long way. And, you know, mm -hmm. you can fill us in a little bit. I'm not trying to blow my trumpet here or go overboard about my teaching, but you've seen your swing change and that you've made a great comment before in that 
now that you feel that you play better in a tournament than you do in practice? And I want you to sort of harp on that or explain the reason behind that. And I can jump in if need be, but I think you got a pretty good yeah. mark on on why that why that's true. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think it, it totally it happens when you shift from working on what you might call the geometry of the swing, so what it looks like, to the physics of the swing, to what it feels and how it acts like. Uh, and that feels travel and positions don't travel. So because a feeling can feel the same, uh, whereas finding a certain position can change week in, week out. And so I think when you get under the gun, uh, what you have to do is be able to trust some kind of a feel. Uh, some, and that what you're able to do by developing that, what develops that is working on speeds and pressures and working on force into the shaft coming from the ground and understanding how you actually translate that force and that force inevitably turns into acceleration. And so that becomes the main pillar of what you're doing is moderating your acceleration, choosing when to go fast and when to go slow and how to build into that kind of thing. And so for me, changing the feeling of everything matters until impact to the only thing matters is after impact. And that is has so been, hard for people to understand, isn't it? Has been the main thing for me. And you know what? Scientifically speaking, realistically speaking, nothing does matter after impact because you actually can't affect what the ball does after you hit it, scientifically speaking. But that's the problem is that people take that as scientific or realistic and then they intuit it as the correct path to development. But it's not true because intent is what matters. And like intent is what good players use. You know, I always find it funny on a bit of a tangent here when people say, oh, well, PJ Tour average is 20 feet from the hole for approach shots. Okay, but not a single PJ Tour player is intending on hitting it 20 feet from the hole every, every approach shot. <laughs> so probably that, 40 by then. Right. That, that result that you're looking at and quoting as some kind of, uh, you know, statistic that matters is the result of an intention. And the only way that you can be as good as, as someone is to copy their intentions. So just like the only way that you can hit it like someone is to copy their intentions in their swing is not to copy what it looks like because they're working with their body and you're working with your body so what you have to do is copy their mindset and then use the same physics because we all get to use the same physics. No one gets to use less gravity than someone else or more force, more centrifugal force than someone else. Those are all uniform for all of us. So the only way that you can hit it like Ben Hogan is to try and feel the way that Ben Hogan felt when he was hitting golf shots. That's not going to look like Hogan unless you're, like, unless you're similar built to him then you might have something that looks similar. But you can be like Brendan Todd, who is literally the opposite build to Ben Hogan and still function in a similar way by feeling the same things. And so that's been the main shift for me is shifting away from what it looks like to what it feels like and then understanding 
reading between the lines of all the great ball strikers, uh, reading between the lines about what they were saying to find the common threads because those are the only things that actually matter. So it doesn't matter why Sam Snead ripped it inside on the way back. It doesn't matter why Jack Nicholas took it more upright on the way back. Those were their ways of finding the same position in the downswing. So their intentions, you know, well, you, you, you just can't know unless you ask them. But all that matters is that they're finding the same way into and at and through the ball. And so all you should be doing is trying to find the same position into, at, and through the ball and let the rest of it create itself. I always find it funny when people talk about how if you make a good backswing, the follow-through and stuff takes care of itself. Okay, great. Let's take that logic and flip it around. How about you find a good pre-impact, post-impact position and then let the backswing take care of itself? Because if the logic exists, then it has to extend the other way as well. And that's... That's why I really don't understand the nothing after impact matters because what you intend to do after impact will have a massive impact, uh, will have a massive influence on what you do before impact. I sound but, like I'm, you sound like I'm talking in the mirror here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I take instruction well. <laughs> but it, it's 100% true. And that's one of the biggest hurdles, not... Not overall, but it is a big hurdle initially when people just do not believe you that because we always hear impacts the most important thing. And of course, the easiest way to get to impact would be to be in a good backswing position. That's how that's basically since day dot, that's how people have taught. But yeah. then on the other hand, you've got Jack Nicholas talking about acceleration through the ball and Gary, I've got a, a video of Gary Player. He says the word acceleration like 11 times during a clinic. Acceleration <laughs> through the ball. I think I might have it in one of my books, the, the e-book. Um, but, you know, Ben Hogan talked about the fastest point of his swing was two feet past the ball. Um, to talk about you, what you just said, George Knutson wrote, it's not what you do, it's what you intend to do with your swing. So, yeah. It's basically one of my favourite quotes from all that I've used a lot is that it's function over form. That's basically what your swing boils down to and how it looks doesn't matter because if it did, Lee Trevino wouldn't have made a dollar. That's right. And, you know, the the whole, uh, yeah, I'm tough. I don't really have much to add to that, really. I mean, that's that's like... Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the feeling that Hogan talks about about the late hit, uh, which is a really incredible thing once you can feel it. Uh, it's not something that you can really, a position that you can have someone find. It's a, it's a feeling that is the result of working with good physics. And it's the only way to hit a truly flush golf shot is to get that late hit and keep pressure on the shaft in post-impact. And the reason why I can say that it is the only way to do it is because it's the only way to use the physics properly. So technology is maybe getting to a point where it can create that for us, but it won't feel the same. Right. So Dustin Johnson can hit his fade that he loves to hit off the tee that spins at 2,200 RPM because of technology, 
So he can hit a fade that has a draw flight characteristic because of technology. It doesn't change the fact that it doesn't feel like a draw, right? So there's a reason why you used to hit it 50 yards further with a draw than a cut uh, off the tee. And technology has closed that gap, but it doesn't, you know, the feelings are important. And so it's, re it's really important to be developing what a golf swing feels like. And that extends into your equipment as well. Yeah, um, actually, I'm going to stop you there for one second because we've sort of turned this into a, a battle of the swing talk and everything like that, which obviously is all well intended. But the reason that it's okay or I think it's a great topic is because this is something that you has really helped your game in the last 18 months, whether it was me or whether it was Butch Harmon or whether it was someone else, that you've now got your understanding of what makes the swing tick. And I'm sure you're probably a swing junkie. I know you've mentioned the golf machine and you've read that. I couldn't read I I couldn't read any of it. I couldn't understand it. But I think a lot of my basis is on it, although I add different areas or, or I provide options like that did. But put us uh, put us back 18 months ago when we first started got get together and how difficult or easy or the first couple of meetings were in trying to establish something and how did you go about it? Was it, you know, I know in the pandemic you came out the other side of it because you couldn't practice. You basically did your drills. But was that at the start or was, you know, run us through your process of, because obviously you've just come 4th, 5th, 7th, 16th, 1st, 2nd win. Like it's, <laughs> So obviously something's changed and that can be mental too, but it's, it's a happy place with your swing that allows a better mental frame of mind and everything. But I need to touch on some of your, your main keys that you've felt and are really working. Yeah. Well, I'll touch on what, uh, you know, what the impact it's had on my current play first and, and say that, you know, the, the fact that I can play seven tournaments with a single swing feel and actually hit the ball reasonably consistently for those seven tournaments is what allows all of the other attributes that I, that I tend to have, which is some, you know, what some people would call like mental toughness, or I just call it sticking to the plan uh, when I play and consistency of execution and things like that, that I can do. Uh, so that's what it's given me. And so that's why I'm able to play. And because I'm hitting the ball better, when I, when I execute consistently now, it means that I'm consistently hitting 15, 16, 17, greens and, and being able to control my ball and not hit the ball out of play and, and do things like that. So which allows my chipping and putting to win me some tournaments, which is great, instead of make me some cuts. So when I first started, when I, when I came to you basically in desperation 18 months ago, I was sort of in a position where I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, I was sort of afraid to hit it. At the last events, I'd sort of worked through uh, some stuff with the Harmon stuff and, and managed to overdo the simplicity of the Harmon stuff uh, and had gotten to a point where I was super steep and kind of cutting across it and, and, you know, just not really letting the club function in the way that it's designed to function. And so when we when I came in uh, to see you, I mean, I read your ebook the first one. I read it twice because I wanted to understand it. And then uh, I read it the morning before our first session when I was up in Greenville as well. And because I, the way that I have learned that I learn things is I like to try and understand something and then 
once I think that I understand it, then I'll go to someone who actually understands it, i.e. the person who wrote it or the person who designed it, and then I will let them tell me why I don't understand it in the way that I think that I do, and that helps me really grasp something well. And so that's the process that we went through. And so when I was there working with you, a lot of what I was saying, I sort of grasped it because the concept is not particularly um, complicated, but it's something that requires a lot of trust. Uh, and you sort of need to get your head around the fact that you don't just need to release your body from the top of the swing. You actually need to use your arms a bit, release the club with your arms, and then use your body in order to create a smoothly accelerating club from the top of the swing all the way through into your follow through. Um, because if you just release your body, you just don't have the amount of leverage and power to do that. Uh, and so that was the, really the only leap of faith that it, that it took, you know, I was sort of, we, I joke with you that I say you should technically call it the Brad Hughes dual release method because you're like releasing it with your arms and then your body, there's two releases. So um, once I sort of got into the idea I really function well in a nice closed-in environment. So when I could sort of say to myself, okay, these are the three drills I need to do. I need to do drills one, two, and three. And then I just need to go drill one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And I, that was basically what I did. Um, I would be on the range and I would have my impact bag and my board and uh, my alignment stick in the in post-impact position there. And I would just be working through. I'd do a bunch of drill ones. Then I would do some bunch of drill threes and then I would hit the ball uh, and then see how I did and try and develop a feeling for where it was breaking down. And even now, my swing is only in three parts. You know, it's my backswing and then into transition that gets me into my 430 position. And then I'm releasing the club from the 430 position with my forearms and then I'm doing my post-impact. Those are the three parts of my golf swing and the ground connection with the board, with the down under board, is what holds that all together. And so that's it. And so if my swing is not working, if I'm not hitting it pure, one of those three things is breaking down. Hallelujah. Uh, that's it. You've got a plan that you can go back to. And that's it. And, and you so know the feels. That's right. And I have the ability now through the simplicity, but not only simplicity, it's also comprehensive in nature so it covers everything in a simple way which is why i think it's you know not to i know you're blowing your trumpet but i'll blow it for you too and say that um i think i really do think it's a paradigm shift in coaching because it's simple and comprehensive and so you can stay within these drills and know that you're going to get better you actually can't get worse doing that and so that's huge for me because effort is not an issue for me. So I can just go, I can just do this for two hours every day for the next however long and see the results. And I've got some videos that kind of go through and I can see the swing changing just through doing the drills. And it didn't feel like it was changing. But I look back and I'm like, wow. I used, and it's amazing to see it when I used to think, man, that, I thought that used to look pretty good. And now I'm like, oh, that looks so different. And it's amazing to me that you can do that. And so once I basically got into that little loop of working on my drills and hitting balls, then it just became about starting to learn to hit shots with it. And I got to the point, 
and I still am to the point where I don't really think about it in clubs anymore. I think about it in distances. And so I'll think about whether the pin is on the right or the left or the front or the back and think about hitting a slightly different shape into each of those. And I'll think about a yardage. And so I'll think about 175 to a left pin will be most likely with an eight iron. And it's sort of a bit of a trappy draw in there. Uh, but 175 to a right pin is most likely with a seven iron. The, the clubs become the tools that create the shots. Uh, and I, that's, that's where I always wanted to get to with my striking. It's where I've always been with my short game and my putting. And that's all I want. And, uh, and I've been able to do that by staying within, uh, staying within the drills in that sense, which is such a cool thing. And I heard you say on, uh, I think it might have been with uh, Andy Marr and those guys one morning on the, on their podcast, how you, um, during the pandemic, you obviously you came and saw me one time because you, you couldn't practice anywhere in Florida. So you came up and hit some balls in, in Greenville. But right before that, you, I don't know how long it would be, maybe a month or so, you hadn't been able to do anything. And you did your drills and you did your drills and then you went out and the first ball you hit, you described it as like something else, something that you couldn't believe. Yeah. So we had a lockdown in Florida. So it was 28 days. Uh, and I just set myself a little drill workout. <laughs> uh, and I just went out and did it out by the, like the sort of lake at, at the apartment complex we're living at, dug up the turf completely uh, out there, all these divots and all kinds of foot divots and stuff out there. But I did that. So for 28 days, didn't hit a ball because golf course were all close. And then I came up to Florida, I was up to Greenville, and I was so nervous to see whether the drills had actually done anything. And the first shot that I hit was with an eight iron, first full shot. And I just, I felt everything I'd been feeling with the drills for the last month and in, like visualizing these shots. And it was just the most flush eight iron I think I've ever hit, even now. <laughs> like even now. So maybe, maybe the deal is to just do drills for a month <laughs> before a tournament. So I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest that because of the nuance involved in, in competing in events. But uh, as far as actually developing your swing, you can do it without hitting bolts, which is a really cool thing. And one of the other things I liked that you said before was about the, um, you know, someone actually asked me this when Brendan Todd got back into contention. He was going to get in, you know, he's near the lead in Bermuda. And someone said, you know, he hasn't played in contention for a long time. How's he going to deal with the pressure? And I said, well, that's all we've worked on. We've worked on pressures in his feet and in his left yeah. side and in his forearms, in his wrist. You know, we've basically learned his swing instead of being a loosey-goosey swing the club head, nothing type unpressurized golf swing, you know, swing the hand, all these ideas that people have, release the club head, what have you. I said, we've, he's learned how to swing with pressure. So when the pressure hits him, it's not going to alter his swing. And, and that's kind of, I think, what you're feeling now. That's right. Yeah, I mean, what makes feeling pressure in your golf swing easier is adrenaline. And so what you can do is if you have things set in a way that you know you can never swing it too hard or hit it too hard or push into the ground too hard, or grip the club too firmly, none of these things, because you can't do any of those things too much if you're working in line with physics because you'll just hit it better and better so long as your gear can handle it, then 
that's the only variable really. And so long as you can do that, the more the pressure, the better you hit it. The harder you swing it, the better you hit it. So long as your speed is at the right time. So if you've got your speed building to a place just after the ball as an intention, then again, because scientifically it's not true, but yeah, collision will slow it down, but you're intending to keep it. Of course, up. but your intention is there. The more pressure, the harder that you swing it, the faster that you move it, the better you'll hit it. And that is just something that the really great players understood. Uh, and it's hard to understand if you've never felt it. And I think that's why there aren't many people that uh, can sort of competently teach it. And what about, you touched on this and I, you know, I posted uh, something that was in the golf magazine about you, your club setups. So everyone, you know, will laugh about this because I'm sure in today's world, you probably have the flattest set of golf clubs out of any pro in the world. I, I doubt anyone would rival you, would they? <laughs> Maybe. They are six degrees flat uh, to tightless standards. That'll be four or five degrees flat on Mizuno standard, which are the flattest irons, I believe, standard Mizuno. Um, so, yeah, they're very flat. I mean, I don't have a single club that's in the 60s in lying, as for those that know <laughs> about that. Um, and the, you know, my clubs go, uh, they're 58 is the, is the most upright lie angle. Um, my lob wedge has more loft on it than lie angle. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and, and I use the same shaft all the way through, uh, my irons, all my steel shafts are all dynamic gold X7s. This is a beautiful shaft, uh, just reinforced X1s, uh, is basically what it is, um, with a thicker middle part again, because I want it. And, the irony, of course, for people that know me, uh, I'm not a particularly long hitter. Like, I mean, I'm not a short hitter, but I'm not particularly long. But I have done a lot of work in the gym over the last few years, and, and so I am reasonably um, strong. And so I can handle, and I do load the club a lot in my swing. So that's something that I think club fitters maybe miss sometimes is the amount that you load the club in your swing is also important with the amount uh versus the amount of speed that you generate. I don't generate a lot of speed. I'm somewhere in 118 mile an hour, you know, club heads through my driver. But it's like I load the club a lot. So I need a shaft that can handle that. And so what the the huge thing has been with uh, LA Golf, LAGP, who have done a lot of work with DeChambeau about, you know, creating something crazy light and crazy stiff is that their new shafts can actually do that. They're shafts that I need to actually work to get some load on it. And that's the same way that I feel about the, um, the irons with the X7 shafts. So all my gear is six degrees flat and also weak so that there's no offset as well. So we're, we're going for pure unaltered golf clubs here. I don't want, I don't want the golf clubs doing me any favors. I want the feedback. Um, I want to know what it feels like because so much of what we do now is entrenched in feel between hands and club head, which the vehicle for that is the shaft, and then ground and, and body, and the vehicle for that is shoes, and then also the club head and the ground. And so understanding those kind of inflection points and what that feels like is really, really important. So it's really, really important that all your gear makes sense for what you're trying to do. And I don't want gear that I can overload. 
And the two tournaments that I've won in the last couple of weeks here have been tested both times with shots that uh, were just a little out of my comfort zone for um, like length of clubs. You know, one was a seven iron into a par five and the other one was a four iron into a par five that were about seven or eight yards outside of the realm of possibility. But both of them left flags. So I don't really want to soften something into a left flag. I'd rather rip something. And so being able to hit it hard and know that the ball can't go left is a okay, huge so explain thing. Explain that. Hey. Actually, I've got, I've got two questions for you. Before we started, um, you can. I'll do. I'll answer. Ask both questions first. Before we started, what? Obviously, your lie angles weren't that weak or let down. They've obviously been flattened over time. One, because you understand what you just said, that it's much harder to hit a flat club to the left because if you generally stand the club up or whatever, you will hit the toe deep first and the face will slightly go open. So for those people that keep writing me on Instagram and everything, what's up with the flat clubs, there's your answer. You, it's basically harder to hit a flat club so far left because it's not really going to hit the heel first and, and draw unless you've got a really poor swing plane. But that's not going to happen also. So you've got your club set up that basically now you know you can't hit it left. And that yep. also enables you to release it so strongly and with conviction that you can't hit it right. Is that correct? That's right. So in order for the clubs not to go right, I need to release it. And I need to swing. I need to basically wrestle it back online from the right-hand side. And But I know that I can't overpower it so it can't go left. So the only solution for me under pressure to hit shots well is to hit it harder. Pressurize it. And, and that is one hell of a mindset to be in under pressure. Much rather than, man, I have to really smooth this down there to get it to go straight. I don't want that option. I do not want that option when I'm playing. The only exception to that rule is when I'm trying to hit like a soft cut under pressure, in which the clubs basically do it themselves. So um, the, other, the other benefit of flat lie angles, for those that are trying to understand why it's better, is that the more uniform that you have the lie angle to the shaft, the more you can use, the closer that those things are to being in line, the more that you can use the same, the same physics that you use to get the club shaft online to keep the club face square. So because... The more different that that angle is, the more that you have to use your wrists to be able to square the club face up. But the more flat that it is, the more you can just use acceleration to keep the club face square. And so you can use acceleration to square the club face up instead of using wrist angles. And so the more that you can keep it in line with the shaft, the straighter you can hit it. So, which is something, something that people don't uh, quite get until you've actually tried it. And all of my friends who try my gear, they get scared by it, but then they hit it and they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's actually not that bad. Yeah, not that bad. <laughs> but, and after a while, but it doesn't even look bad. I have my, uh, my impact bag club that I get people to train with. I don't tell them initially because I, I want them to see something that sits flat so they can get used to seeing that 430 path and actually releasing the club. Um, it's 10 degrees flat. It's only a practice nice. club that they hit the bag with and they don't even know. Yeah. Same no idea. thing, you know, I used to have a, a, my 
uh, teaching club was like three degrees flat and people I'd say, yeah, hit Matt, hit that. And they go, I can't hit that. And they'd hit it and they'd hit it better than their, their club. So I think what Bryden was getting at too, is obviously we, we can't draw diagrams on a podcast, but the more upright the club is, the more the shaft would, con- if you continued the shaft down, it would be more towards the heel of the club. And that would be prone to the face rotating a lot more. So the flatter you get your club and the shaft, the more the shaft would continue and get out near the middle of the the sole, basically. So the yep. face would be prone yep. to less twisting. So there's a yep. lot of benefits for it. Uh, club fitters generally don't understand that because they want to change a club to fit your over-the-top swing <laughs> rather than getting a club like uh, it's like, Bryden said before, um, you know, there's a lot of people over the last 50 years have been trying to swing it like Ben Hogan, but they can't if they don't have their club set up how he did. So that's right. That's right. Well, I think yeah. as well, the other thing is that the 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 tech the technological advances that have allowed club fitting to fit your average golfer into gear that's going to make them better are a good thing for our sport. But the thing is, is that because not everyone has time to practice, right? So, you know, some people just want to enjoy golf more through better equipment. That's fine. And, like, I think it's a really important part of the ecosystem that the equipment companies have carved out there. Having said that, I think that the professionals, it makes no sense for the professionals to follow the same club-fitting guidelines that someone of 15 does because what we're doing is fundamentally different from them. And so I think that the really interesting thing is that why pros decide to fit gear to what they're like on the range that day makes no sense to me. Why wouldn't you, seeing as your gear, your clubs are the only thing you get to take with you every time you play that is guaranteed to be the same every time you go, why that wouldn't be a yardstick for your best swing, I don't understand. So not even the golf balls you take with you every time are the same, but at least the clubs don't change and so why those aren't fit for when you are doing everything you want to be able to do with your golf swing that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me love it i'm not just beating my head against the wall <laughs> hey so well, i, I to might touch on... on the other side of the wall that's all <laughs> so we'll get away from the swing stuff for a second because but it's really interesting because from my perspective and I, I know you knew a lot about swing and, and you studied stuff, but it's great to see your mind open up and sort of see some of the things that I was talking about. Now, do you think also you've had to flatten your clubs down, not just the pressure on the shaft and all that, and the foot pressure and, you know, they're all, but because of the you maybe deeper 430, like there's, explain why you think you've had to flatten them down even more, better footwork, better more 430, better rotation, what better explosion beyond impact you could stay lower you know what what do you think you feel most so i i think it boils down to this right is that you know again i like to deal in absolutes when i can and so if i have a six degree flat four iron with an x7 in it if i can hit the shots that i want to be able to hit with that club i must be swinging the club pretty well so that is the kind of the extreme approach that I like to take to things. I'd sort of like to go deep end and just figure it out. And so when I first got 
these clubs and I built them and I got them put together, Titleist as well. I remember you telling me that they didn't want to do it. Titleist were sceptical about my ability (laughs) to be able to hit these clubs. And you know what? They were right. Uh, But I was like, I can't hit them right now, but I will be able to in three months. And so I wanted something like that. And so what that naturally creates is that with a heavy, stiff, flat blade iron, you are going to have a more flat swing with a lot of kind of foot pressures that you'll see, uh, a lot of more feet working like straight back and forward and kind of rather than kind of up on the toes and you'll be swinging around yourself a lot more. You'll see a lot more of a sort of a lower hands pressure exit type thing and you'll see you know, because you have to, a building acceleration into a fast follow-through. I think that, that those are just the ways that you have to swing the club to be able to hit heavy flat clubs well. And so I knew that I wanted to be the kind of player that could hit heavy flat clubs well. And so I knew that being able to hit those ball flights with these clubs, I would be able to figure out the middle part And the middle part for me was the drills. And so I could just work on the drills and then I would get instant feedback from the six iron or five iron that I was hitting. Because if I could hit like a softer high draw with it, then I'm like, yep, that's it. Yeah. Um, Let me going to ask, obviously you are now back in Australia. You, You lived over in America, what, 10 years maybe? 11. 11 years. And, you know, we, we came and you came and saw me. I think last time we saw each other in person was maybe, what is it, September? Was it that long ago? or April. April, was it that long ago? Okay. But I remember us talking. I remember all that. I remember oh, no, it was September. It was September. Yeah. Sorry, it was. It was. That's right. Because I think it was pretty close to the time that we had a little chat about it all. And and I loved the concept of it, which now we're obviously we're, we both got thumbs up for, but you were telling me how you were thinking of heading back to Australia because in America at the time with the pandemic and it's still going on, obviously, there's no qualifying schools. You're only playing mini tours. There was basically, it was golf, but your goal was to advance yourself. So there was no chance to advance yourself over here at that time. So you decide to go back to Australia and play the tournaments with no status and with, you know, start from scratch, basically. And now here we are, eighth on the final order of merit, which should have been higher because they didn't count some of your tournaments until you became a winner and a member. But that now opens up those doors that you had planned. You know, you had planned that you said, I think Europe may be a good spot. I can't get to Europe playing America, but maybe I can from Australia. So isn't that, to me... That's unreal goal setting and it's unreal decision making. And now it's fruition. So you've got to feel pretty good about all that. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm lucky to have things uh, somewhat go to plan and, and to have things work out because there have been plenty of times in my life where things haven't worked out. So I think it's a function of a few things. You know, I, my wife and I decided that uh, with the, pandemic situation with the quietening down of the opportunity for us who didn't have a main tour card anywhere, we would take stock and decide 
if we were okay with where we were living, what we were doing, what that looked like maybe for the, for the future with kids and all these kinds of things. And so we took start She's from Hawaii. So we decided to look at Hawaii or Melbourne and, you know, Melbourne has a public health care system. So that was basically it. Uh, and so we decided that we would move back down here. And I, part of that was the conversation that we had when I said, well, you know, there is a lot of opportunity in this part of the world if you're playing well. You know, we have the Japan tour, uh, which is not, not far away from here. Lots of guys play up there. The world ranking points up there are pretty phenomenal. You can have a really good run of golf in Japan and get into the Masters. And you can get into all the majors, actually, quite easily by playing in Japan. There's only three or four guys from the Japan Tour that are in all those events every year. Um, we also have in Australia the, the connections with the European Tour. And so there's a way to go through there through the, the world ranking system. Um, and my world ranking at the moment for the last seven weeks has kind of jumped up. It's like now I'm in the top 300 or like 289 or something now. So, um, which is great, you know, and that opens some, some doors on its own. But it's a function of actually what it can be to take a step back and to say, am I really happy with all of the other things that are going on in my life? Because I think we get, uh, we get sometimes wrapped up in the whole golf, everything, you know, my career is everything, how I played last week is everything. And so one of the greatest gifts that, that working, actually working with you gave me was that I was able to, regardless of how I played in the future or success or not, I was able to enjoy playing golf again because it wasn't complicated. It's difficult, but it's not complicated. There's a very important difference there. And so I was just happy with that. So I was taking the, the, the viewpoint that, look, I'm still good at golf. I still enjoy competing at golf, but I'm done sitting at home worrying about where my game's at today. You know, and I just want to be able to uh, be in a place that I enjoy being with people that I enjoy being with. And that's all my friends and family here. And we're going to be welcoming Christina, my wife down here. And then from there, okay, let's see what opportunity there is. And then I get uh, the PGA were great to give me some, some exemptions. And then I took, I think you could say full advantage of those exemptions. And now we have some opportunity again, but I'm not really looking at, at, at jumping around and jumping the gun and changing the plan. Um, you know, we're going to call this place home uh, and I'm going to be, and, and if I continue to play well and, and keep developing my swing so I can hit it better and better and I can make my way into some bigger tournaments, great, that'd be great. But uh, we're just kind of sticking to that plan right now. And the main thing is, is that I'm enjoying playing golf still. And that's, that's actual, and as cliche as it sounds, and people may not believe me and it's great to make nice checks and all that kind of stuff. It's actually all I care about. Uh, is that I can enjoy playing golf. So, And the other great thing now for all those people from Australia that email me and ask me when I'm coming back to Australia to teach, now I don't have to because I've got Bryden McPherson may do some of my uh, That's right. teaching just basically straight from the horse's mouth. You know it works. Um, he's, gonna, he's still looking at doing the bridging course and doing some lessons on your off time. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, I look forward to... So while I'm here in Australia, being as, as big a service to Australian golf as I can be, um, and that includes teaching, maybe some mentoring if some people want it, and also some playing and showing people that you can uh, that you can know what you're talking about while you're actually doing it as well. <laughs>
It's the old, uh, the old thing that I got confronted with when I started teaching. You don't know what you're talking yeah. about. You could only play. You don't know how to teach. Like, but yeah, that's we're all right. Kind of having a little bit of a last laugh at that. I got a couple <laughs> of questions for you. All right, we'll just do like rapid fire. Okay. Favorite course? Royal Melbourne. Composite. Love it. Yeah. Um, favorite golf moment or best golf moment? Uh, winning the British Am. Best life moment? Getting married. Best drum solo. Apparently, you're a bit of a drummer. Tell us about that. I was for a long time. Yeah, for a long time. I was I was pretty good. Uh, I didn't have a great internal metronome, which is actually pretty important for a drummer. You may not know that, but I was I was quite a good technical drummer. But uh, the best drum solo there is a uh, three way drum solo on YouTube between Dave Weckl, Vinnie Kayua, and uh, Steve Gad. That is the best 12 minutes you'll ever spend in your life. So it's you pretty amazing. Could, so did you look, kind of look like Animal on Sesame Street when you were playing the drums or were you a bit subdued? <laughs> I wasn't that good looking. <laughs> All right. I've got uh, – tell me what this means to you. There are no ordinary moments. What does that mean? Well, it's tattooed on my chest. Uh, it's tattooed on there backwards so I can read it in a mirror, but when someone, <laughs> someone can't read it when they look at me, it's just a way to remember that, uh, you know, and again, as cliche as it sounds, they're like every little bit that we're alive is quite spectacular. It's quite an amazing, uh, it's quite an amazing thing that we exist at all. And, uh, I think it's a pretty cool thing to be able to remind yourself that, um, that it's, it's, you know, every little bit that you're alive, every breath you take, everything you see, everything you hear is unique in some way. I think that's a cool thing. And you remind yourself of that every day. When I can remember to look at my chest in the mirror, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we've been reminded the last few weeks, a couple of seven weeks, uh, how good you are at playing golf. So I hope you, uh, you cherish what you've done and enjoy it. Um, Whatever happens, happens from here on, but at least you've, uh, you've got a lot of options now and you feel very good about yourself. Hopefully your wife will get over and the dogs will get over soon from yeah. way after all that quarantine stuff and I'm sure you can get, it'll be a good time for you to enjoy their company again and a bit of downtime yeah. from golf and see what comes from there. Yeah, I think so too. I appreciate you having me on. It's uh, quite a list of guests you've had on here, so I'm, uh, I'm glad to be part of the lineup. Uh, that's uh, very, very cool. Thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome. You got some great info, um, great attitude. And like I texted you the other night after you won, you've got my address. I want to get a couple of photos with you holding up those trophies to put up in my office. All right. Well, if they're, I guess they're, the New South Wales Open is a big enough event. So I guess, uh, <laughs> did you ever win that one, by the way? I did not. I came second, uh, oh, 1989. Okay. You probably weren't even born then. I wasn't, not yet, but... Uh, <laughs> came second to Roger Davis, said that I did beat, there's a good field. I think Ian Wisdom played and Nick Price and Jeff Maggot. There's a good field, David Graham. Wow, that is a good field. Good field. Much better Nick. than the field, yeah. That's New South Wales. So I, uh, yeah, well, there we go. Well, we'll call it even for that round around Peninsula then. I think we'll call it even. <laughs> All right, back to square. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Hope you enjoy it. I'll talk to you again Thanks, soon. Thanks, Appreciate it. Cheers. Well, that's it for another episode of Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. 
For more information about my golf instruction, check out my website, bradleyhughesgolf.com. If you like to watch golf videos to make you a better player, sign up for my members only site, bradleyhughesgolf-members.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.